HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're spotlighting the people, dishes, and ingredients decolonizing food. We're looking at our Thanksgiving plates and beyond to explore efforts to reclaim food sovereignty in Native American culture, the African diaspora, and Puerto Rico. I believe that oyster dressing is like the consummate side dish for an amazing fried turkey. What we're doing there is just working the land and we're laughing and we're creating a space for joy. And it's in that that healing occurs for us. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're recording in November 2020. This is a special episode with some stars of the Cider Days in Franklin County, Massachusetts. So uh, this should be airing the week of Thanksgiving when you're listening to this. So let's start with a few of the guests. Um, first, let's start with Ben, because you brought us all together and you've got a great history with Cider Days. Please introduce yourself. Sure. Um, I'm Ben Watson. It's great to uh, be on Beer Sessions Radio again with you. I think this is the third time, Jimmy. Um, but I do a lot of, um, I, I just have been interested in cider and wrote a book about it about 20 years ago that came out. Uh, called Cider Hard and Sweet. And I also have been associated for many years with um, Franklin County Cider Days in Western Mass and have helped it and seen it grow um, incredibly, uh, incredibly fast over the years as, as cider has grown. And it's now uh, even something that uh, is a national and international kind of event, uh, having started off as as a small regional uh, event, and uh, and we're we're pleased that it's, it's still going on, even though this year is a little little different from the usual. Well, as, ben, as you know, it, it's quite the thing. I mean, I've been in and around Cider Weeks in New York City since 2011 when they first started, and Cider Days was something that was always held up. What I love about Cider Days in Franklin County is that this is not a convention in. A, a large venue. This is not a big city, you know, type of marketing event. What What are the 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 couple of things about Cider Days that make it unique? And also in terms of like, actually, what do people do at Cider Days? Because it's not just a giant uh, trade show, right? It's not a it's and it's not a big tasting. Which you know, there there's the Cider Summit, which is held in different cities around the the country, and it's it's good and it's ex- you know, exposes the public to a lot of different ciders uh, made all over the place. But Cider Days is different. It, it was an organically, uh, sort of an organic event that started from the ground up because there was so, so many people growing apples and such a tradition of cider making and apple growing in Franklin County, which is the, it's in the northern part of Massachusetts. It's the smallest county. It's the most agricultural county. Um, and it's a, it's quite a special place. There are lots of hill towns around there and good apple growing area. And, um, it, it's always been something that has been 
both a well it started out as as an amateur cider makers event people came there who wanted to learn how to make cider and were doing it sort of like the craft beer people back in the 80s and some of those people have graduated to actually uh producing their own um cider commercially now so it, it kind of was a training ground and it also was a place that um cider makers gradually from around the country as that grew we gathered them together and had meetings before the event on the friday afternoon before the weekend and that was sort of the genesis of the um american cider Associ cider makers association um the national organization now so um i think we're respected for that but we you know we get people from um overseas from spain and from france and italy and we've had people from australia and sweden come to it as well as you know people from all over the northeast so t typically it's spread around different uh cider makers and farms right it's it's going right. to spread out through the whole county and, and that's just... why we and that's why we can do it um to the extent even that we're doing it this year, we're not doing the big events. We haven't done the big events uh, like the, the grand tasting that we do that I help organize, but we're going back to the roots a little bit and um, really emphasizing the uh, orchardists and the, um, and the, and the cider makers and having people sort of do a self-guided uh, cider trail um, from and it, which has expanded beyond Franklin County, we included some people in Western Massachusetts that are outside the county, which is a new thing too. Well, that's great. So now let's go to Peter. So Peter, just tell us how you got in, inspired and and started uh, as a cider maker and cider business. Oh, it was because of cider days that I got started in this uh, back. I think in two thousand, I was up at cider days and tasted. Uh, Terry Maloney's uh, Dry Baldwin Cider. He uh, founded West County Cider out of Coleraine, Mass, and it it was delicious. And wanted to do do something like that myself. Um, and in 2005, an orchard came up for sale in Hawley, Massachusetts, and I knew I'd kick myself from dawn till doom if I didn't buy the orchard and go whole hog into this. And uh, 2007. Put up the mill, 2009, uh, finally got the license and put out the first batch, and it's been going strong ever since. Peter, back then in 2005, was there much demand or interest in uh, owning a cider orchard in New England? No. Um, it, this was um, Apex Orchards, which I also believe, which is going to be right next door to uh, West County Cider's Tasting Room. Um this was their satellite orchard, and it was a pack-out orchard. It was growing just Cortland Mac and Empire. Um, that was back then. Now we've got about 40 different varieties of apples growing, which I'm going to take down to 20 because 40 is just, just too crazy to keep track of. Uh, but it is being changed slowly over time into a cider orchard. The ideal of that is that we can do an orchard run that uh, – Every year, the orchard grows exactly what you need to make to make a good blended cider. And what are the what are the apples now that that you're really set on that you put into your blend that that you're going to propagate? Um... Oh, uh, one is called Alkmeen. That's a that's a German cider apple. That's coming through. It's uh, got a good, reasonably high bricks, uh, high sugar content, which will increase the alcohol. Um, I like the soft tannins of it. Another one I like is called Golden Nugget, which is a cross between Cox's Orange Pippin and Golden Delicious, uh, which is not a cider apple, but it does add some good flavors to it. Uh, St. Edmund's Russet is one of my favorite. And uh, I used to be in love with Medal Dior, uh, but not anymore. It's a pain in my butt to grow. Um, it's, a, it's a tannin bomb. It's, it's, it's got... So much tannin in it that a little goes a long way, but it's firebite susceptible. Um, and well, since you're Peter, actually growing this fruit, you, you've got to go with something that you can produce year in and year out. So, Peter, you're in Holly, Massachusetts. So it seems like I've never heard of Franklin County before I heard about Cider Days. And I've, I've probably driven through that area. Are there any towns or cities in this county that we might know of? No, it's just a lot of dragons and trees and bears. No, it's, 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 
<laughs> yes, um, if you've if you've ever been to Berkshire East Ski Area on Route Two, there's a little town actually on top of the ski area called Holly. Um, we are located. If you go from the Route Two to Route 91 Rotary in Greenfield, uh, you go exactly 20 miles west on Route Two, and that'll get you to Charlemont. Um, so five miles we're away. talking like there's towns like Deerfield and Greenfield. You're somewhere between Boston and Albany, New York, right? Somewhere. <laughs> yeah, <yes. laughs> That's enough yeah. for me. Let me go to Steve. So, Steve, and just tell us how you guys got started at Ragged Hill. Uh, well, I, I grew up here in uh, West Brookfield, where the uh, orchard is located. Uh, I actually had my first taste of cider when I used to work on a friend's dairy farm. And his dad... Uh, they they had a few uh, apple trees on the, on their farm, just an old, old orchard. And his dad used to get the uh, juice pressed and put it in a barrel every year. And us uh, kids, when we were uh, maybe fourteen or fifteen, we used to uh, uh, after we would pull the hay in in the summertime, uh, his dad would let us go down and and get a glass of cider from his cider barrel. So I've always had cider in mind. Uh, and uh, this is a big apple growing area here. And uh, when I uh, grew up, I became interested in fermentation and uh, beer making and wine making, and then just sort of naturally uh, graduated in, into cider because we, we have these apples here. And uh, also I've, uh, West County cider is uh, uh, a great influence on all of us in the uh, cider business. They, they were really the first. Uh, Peter mentioned uh, uh, West County. And uh, I used to taste West County ciders and be very impressed. I used to taste uh, French ciders when I could get them. And uh, they were all so delicious that I just had to figure out how to make some myself. So for sure. So way back in the, even in the 1980s, it was probably, uh, was West County probably one of the few quality hard ciders you could get in that part of the country? Or were, or were people making ciders themselves too? That's, it's like, uh, it's like craft beer. I mean, in the 1980s, uh, you couldn't get decent beer. You had to go to you had to go to Germany or you had to find one, you know, one of the very few people who, who made really good beer. And uh, I was, it's the same with cider. Back, back then, you had to buy a French cider or, um, or uh, West County, if you could find it. They were very small, just really a local, uh, a local thing. And uh, uh Obviously, it's changed rapidly in the past 10 years. All of a sudden, people kind of know about cider. You can find them at your local liquor store, and uh, it's amazing. That's great. So who wants to tackle this next question? So maybe we'll go with Ann. So Ann, uh, you recently joined your father in the business. Just tell us uh, what what roles you have, any initiatives that that you've uh, helped set up about. Well, I'm, yep. So we're, we founded the business together, um, along with our partner, Keith, who's our, or, who's the orchardist who owns the orchard where we have our tasting room and our, our cidery. Um, my main contribution, um, to the cidery has been, um, sales and marketing focused. Um, one of my biggest focuses is doing farmers markets, um, and, and running the tasting room. So I really, um, I, I I love doing tastings. I love talking to people about our cider. I love seeing people's faces when they taste our cider. Um, and and we're such a small a small place, um, kind of in the middle of nowhere. That that's really that sort of grassroots marketing is really the only way that we can get a name for ourselves out there to get, get some recognition, get people to understand what we're doing. Um, and there's so many different kinds of cider out there that I think that really, you really have to taste it to understand or to, to know that it's something that you like. Um, you know, we are, we're an orchard based cidery. We're focused on the fruit. We're not focused on 
lots of different flavors. Um, we're really focused on apples. Um, the only flavor that we do is um, is a raspberry, uh, raspberry rosé style. And th that's because we grow raspberries at the orchard. Um, we're only using fruit that we grow at our orchard. Um, so... That's a great intro. So now I'm going to ask Peter. Peter, um, simple question. Seems like a lot of the growth of hard cider in, in our marketplace has been by beer companies or people kind of making beer style ciders. But is cider beer, should cider be in the beer category? Oh, quick, short answer is no. Um, I mean, and, and it, don't get me wrong. It takes a lot of great beer to make a good cider. <laughs> uh, but uh, but you know we don't use any heat uh, making a cider is exactly like making a dry white wine or making a white wine there's no heat involved in it uh, the fermentation vessels are the same to making wine it takes a long time too uh, to make uh, cider the way that Ragged Hill and I make it uh, pretty much all winter the, uh, the apples that we have harvested and pressed now and are starting to ferment it's going to take till May, March, April, till we're ready to kick him out the door in a bottle. Uh, it does take that long. We can't whip out a batch in six weeks uh, the way we do it. Some people can. There, there are some people who will ferment at high heat. Um, I will try to play nice um, I, and, and tell you that that's one of the reasons that you're going to add flavorings to it. Um, there, there's... There are some more traditional methods to making cider than others. Um, I think you'll find out here in, in Massachusetts that most of us are doing a traditional cider, which comes out a little bit drier because we let the yeast run and eat up most of the sugar. Um, that's the short answer. Um, again, there's no heat. So if you really want to tick off a cider maker, ask them how they brew their cider, and you will get, you will get a nasty scowl. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great little intro. Um, and back to Steve. So, Steve, do New England apples taste different from other regions? And if so, uh, what would you compare your region of Massachusetts to uh, in the wine world? Well, uh, our apples in this region taste differently. Different. I mean, if you get a, a Mac from... Uh, uh, from Peter or from from us, it's going to taste quite a bit different than if you get one from Washington State. Uh, our, uh, our our weather is is colder. Our our soils are different. Um, our apples uh, are uh, sometimes not quite as sweet, but they'll have more other flavors to them, which is what makes a good cider apple. So a good cider apple isn't necessarily a really great uh, eating apple. Cider apples have uh, oftentimes have a, a little bit of bitter taste. They have more acids in them. But all these things are what contributes to uh, uh, more flavor after they're fermented. The other thing is that the, the varieties that we grow here in New England are, uh, are different than what people grow in the rest of the country. Uh, Peter named some of his favorite apples. My favorite apple is actually the Roxbury Russet, which uh, is the first apple that was grown by the pilgrims when they came here. It's from Roxbury, Massachusetts. It's the first named variety. It grows great here. It's a perfect apple uh, for Massachusetts growers, and it makes fantastic cider. But people wouldn't buy it if you saw if they saw it in a store. It's very ugly. It looks like a potato. It has a russeted skin. Uh, it's also uh, very acid and uh, has a slight bitterness to them. But makes uh, a great cider and grows fantastically here here in Massachusetts. So that's one of the things that we concentrate on is uh, uh, locally based varieties, uh, especially like Roxbury Russet, Baldwin is another variety that comes from right here in Massachusetts. Uh, we have some Franklin apples, which is actually a new apple, not a traditional variety, but uh, is from Vermont. Um, and uh, so 
one reason uh, that our ciders taste different, ciders from people like Peter and, and us and a few other growers who also make their own ciders, is that these apples just aren't available generally on the market. You have to grow them yourself if you want these real uh, cider varieties that are packed with the qualities that make a great cider. That's great. Now, Ben, uh, jumping to Cider Days, tell us what's happening this year for Cider Days in, in lieu of you know, no large gatherings. Uh, what is the Cider Trail, for example? Well, the Cider Trail is a, um, we just decided that we wanted to keep the tradition going of having Cider Days, some activity on the first weekend, first full weekend in November, which is when it always happens. And this year it's happening a little bit, a few days later, just because the way the calendar falls. But we decided that because of the, uh, to adapt to the coronavirus uh, issue uh, during the year, it became clear that we weren't going to be able to do big public events or workshops like we normally do. But as I said before, we wanted to support the local uh, orchards and cider makers because there are so many in Western Mass. So we've um, been promoting them, and uh, it's a new wrinkle but called the Cider Trail. But I think we'll continue it. It's a little bit difficult in the first year, but it's basically a um, self-motivated, self-guided tour that people can take. They can um, link to on the website, uh, on the Cider Days website to the Cider Trail. They can find information about all of the venues and really plan an itinerary of, you know, going out. And I think the thought was that um, we wanted to, we, we put up the information before Columbus Day weekend. And the thought was not only did we want to sp encourage spreading out people who came there, because the, you can't have large public gatherings this year, but also um, we wanted to space it out in time and tell people that, hey, there's there's activity going on all fall. It isn't just Cider Days weekend and encourage people to come to the area when it's during foliage season or when it's particularly beautiful. Um, it still is beautiful, but but, uh, you know, earlier you would see all the vivid colors this year. Um, so, um, you know, we'll see how it goes. Um Next year, hopefully, we'll be able to to uh, uh, continue some of our traditional events that we have, like the uh, Cider Salon, the big tasting that we do uh, with cider makers all over the country and a few international ones. And someone was talking about, uh, I guess Steve was talking about, you know, or Anne was talking about trying lots of different kinds of ciders. Well, there you can try, you know, up to 100 ciders if you have time to do it. Um, and really find out for people who haven't had a lot of experience with ciders, find out what style you like and and um, and get a chance to sample small portions of uh, of each producer's uh, products. Well, Ben, it's, it's definitely on our radar for next year. And for this year, let me jump to Ann. Um, Ann, what's it like participating in the cider trail for you? And 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 how do most people buy your ciders? So, um, so we package our ciders in 750 ml bottles. Um, so like a wine bottle. Um, so in a normal year, we have a tasting room and people can come and taste our ciders. Um, this year in Massachusetts, um, we are not able to do any on-site pouring, um, because we don't serve food on site. Um, so, Really, it, it's up to me to, to describe to our, our ciders to people the best that I can and try to get them excited about it um, because sometimes a seven, 750 is, is kind of a, a steep buy-in for people who don't know if it's something that they're, that they're going to like. Um, so, so that's been a little bit of a challenge this year, um, but I am finding that people are are more and more interested in trying, trying new things. So they're, and, and this year I think people are just getting more brave and they just want to try different stuff anyway. So um, uh, we've had a lot, we've had a lot of traffic at the orchard this year. Um, I think people are just looking to, to get out and do something out of doors and go for a drive. And we're certainly on um, back roads, you know, beautiful drive in new England. Um, so we've gotten people who, um, who, 
uh, have found us through the Cider Trail, um, even though we're a little bit out of the normal area. We're not in Franklin County. We're sort of um, west of Worcester, though. So we're west Western Mass in that respect. Um, but but it's exciting. It's exciting to be part of the part of the actual Cider Trail um, because it it really is. I feel like the Franklin County Cider Days is sort of the quintessential, you know, um, cider event of the year in in, in the U.S. Well, it really does put uh, New England on the map for for hard cider, and um, I, it's amazing to me just how much you know the cider industry has grown, but also just how far it can grow. Because still, if you had a, the average person had a name, uh, a cider brand, I'm sure they know one or two that's from their region, but mostly they probably know some mainstream ciders. Um, so this is probably. Uh, the event we should all be going to. Um, the real question I want to ask about is, is um, you know, some of the growing practices that you guys are doing. Um, let, let's start with Peter. Peter, um, how do you describe your growing practices and, and your ag, your agriculture? Um, are you planting rootstock? Are you grafting? Tell us what steps you, you go through, um, you know, maybe throughout the year. Uh, that's probably a, a big topic, but I'd like to see it from your perspective. Okay. Uh, well, I do classic IPM, um, which is you do your monitoring. You don't put anything on the trees until you actually look at the trees. Um, and there are some old school methods where you just go by a schedule. I know the date and time, and I'm going to put this and this on the tree. Um, I've been top working most of these large M7. M7 is a rootstock. It's a large freestanding tree. I've been top working these beasts um, basically because I didn't want to dozer them and cut them out. Because you look at these massive tree and you realize that you've got a root system that's just as massive, which is a great nutrient delivery system to whatever you plan to grow on that rootstock. Um, I did clear out, um, oh, it's about 20 acre orchard. I did clear out about three or four acres and have planted some semi dwarf trees, uh, a G30 rootstock on five separate varieties. Um, I don't know. You have to permanently stake them that way. That's that's okay. And we do have a lot of wind in, up in Holly at the top of the hill. So uh, we do have to do that. Um, I don't think I'll ever go full super dwarf where I need a uh, drip irrigation system. Uh, there's a lot to be said with the older freestanding trees uh, that they are so robust. Um, and that if you don't like that variety you do have the opportunity to take a chainsaw to the top and graft back onto it, which is what I've done in a bunch of cases. Um, I used to be certified organic for the first seven years, but I like growing Macintosh. And most people will tell you uh, that do grow that you can't grow Macintosh organically in Massachusetts. And when I first heard that, I said, yeah, yeah, sure. All right, old man, whatever you say. Um, but they're right. Um, that you do, especially for the fungicides, have to do at least one or two sprays of a non-organic fungicide. Um, so I do IPM, uh, which has reduced my use of insecticides and pesticides greatly. Um, and another nice thing about growing cider fruit is you—they aren't—they aren't pretty. You know, these these cider apples, you're not going to find them in your local grocery store. They're ugly. Um, they've got fly speck on them. They've got sooty blotch on them. Uh, they're gnarled. They have a bite taken out of them, not by me, but you know, by a, a bug bite taken out of them. But that's fine because these we're after the juice inside. The cosmetic appeal is not that important to us. As long as we have good sound fruit with a good bricks and a good flavor profile, we're happy. You know, that's that's a great little uh, start because I can imagine that all these cider growers and, and home cider makers probably stand around and ask these questions at Cider Days, don't they? They do. They do. And uh, one of the things that worked out really well for me this year was the drought. Um, one of the things that you will note that a well-tended, a well-watered, a well-fed apple is the lazy ingredient of a mediocre cider. Uh, you, <laughs> you, you want those trees to be stressed uh, to some extent. I mean, not to like, drop over dead, um, but um, you want to intensify the flavor. And in a drought year like this year, 
the yield per bushel, how much, how many gallons you get per bushel, is lower, but the flavor is more intense. Whereas last year was a wet year, so we got a lot more juice per bushel, but the flavor was like, yeah, it's kind of watered down. Um, so each year, even if you grow the exact same apple the exact same way, it's going to be different. But unfortunately, cider is not allowed to put a vintage on the label. Only wine can do that. Well, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a few minutes and we'll talk more about that here on Beer Sessions Radio. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's Central Coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select Whole Food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We're talking with uh, some producers in Massachusetts of cider. It's Cider Days there now. Um, I'd like to make a big shout out to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Become a member. Support all these great uh, podcasts that represent farming, food, chefs, and so much more. HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Um, okay, so we were just talking with Peter of uh, Headwater Cider and Steve and Ann from Ragged Hill Cider, both in Massachusetts. Um, Steve, you're going to jump in now. So you told me earlier that you think that your region in Massachusetts is the Napa Valley of cider. Uh, how is your cider growing and, and making akin to winemaking? Well, the, technically, it's exactly the same as winemaking. Uh, the only difference is we're using apples. Apples have lower sugar content, so we uh, cider doesn't have as much alcohol in it as, as typically as wine, except that we make a, a product, uh, as do uh, several other cider makers, that is a traditional New England thing. We call it ice cider. And the ice cider, to, to make the ice cider, we press the juice in January and then take it outside to freeze. And we, uh, the, we, freeze the, the watery part of the cider, essentially throw the, throw the water ice away and we end up with a very concentrated juice. It's almost like maple syrup, uh, very, very sweet, very concentrated. And the, then we ferment that. So it has so much sugar in it that the yeast dies um, when it produces all the alcohol it can tolerate but then it still has quite a bit of sugar in it. So we end up with a, a higher alcohol uh, sweet, uh, sweet cider that's uh, very uh, unctuous. It's, uh, it's, it's thick, syrupy. It's almost, uh, it's almost like a port. Um, uh, so uh, this is something we do in, in New England to, uh, to in, enhance that, the alcohol. Uh, it, uh, in, in ciders, because normally a cider is going to be somewhere between five and maybe eight uh, percent uh, alcohol. But you, so it's almost like you're up in Vermont or Montreal. You're working with the climate because it's so cold out. It's it's fairly easy for you to make ice cider, isn't it? Yes. So the cold is a resource for us here in New England. So unlike what 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 Peter was saying, good cider you never cook it or brew it. 
ice cider, you don't need to use a refrigerator, do you? Right. Uh, you don't refrigerate it. I mean, uh, strictly speaking, the designation ice cider uh, means that it's naturally produced without refrigeration. That's great. Um, what are some, you know, designations or, or you know, categories that, that are that are official and, and, and needed in the cider world? You know, are you guys working with anything in Massachusetts or is it, is it the American Cider Association? You know, what are some new developments or anything about certification or, you know, categories or anything that you'd like to talk about, Steve? Well, the cider industry is, uh, we're, we're constantly uh, talking about how to, how to zero in on classifications of our ciders that would have meaning to con consumers so that a consumer could look at a label and understand better what the cider is. The way you can look at a, a wine label, you can see where it's from, uh, you can see what, uh, what kinds of grapes it was produced from. So in the cider business, uh, first of all, the this stuff doesn't mean doesn't yet mean much to people. So we're trying to zero in on definitions for cider that that might be meaningful to to the consumer. Uh, it, it's this is still a, a shifting landscape. Uh, we don't have like what the wine winemakers have. We don't have uh, uh, American uh, viticultural areas. We don't have American pomological areas uh, the, the way that the winemakers do. But um, New England ciders in, in particular uh, really are developing a particular taste. We have our certain styles like ice ciders, like, uh, like dry ciders that we, uh, uh, that, we, that we tend to like, ciders that have more tannin in them from the cider apples that we grow here in New England. For instance, the apples that they tend to grow out west don't have a, a lot of these uh, intense tannins, and their ciders are um, uh, have have less of a of a bite to them. Uh, they tend to have a more uh, acetic character, what you might call a a, a vinegary uh, kind of uh, uh, taste to them. Uh, whereas in New England, we don't really have have that. Uh, vinegary flavor in many of our ciders. It's a cleaner, uh, crisper, more minerally um, flavor. That's really the taste of, of New England ciders. And of course, our sweet ice ciders, of which there are several very good producers here, here in New England. So that's really an emerging category. That's great, Steve. I'm going to go back to Ben. So Ben, uh, you know, Franklin County, Massachusetts, Cider Day, Cider Trail, um, what's a, is there a restaurant that you really like that, that might have a, a particularly interesting cider pairing or, uh, feature a number of ciders with, with some food that's worth traveling for? Uh, yeah, there, <clears throat> a lot of the restaurants in the, in the area have, uh, in past years done special, special pairings or special offerings, uh, during cider days, um, and one of them uh, that we like in uh, in Greenfield particularly is called Hope and Olive, which is um, uh, a very clever name. It's on the corner of Hope and Olive Streets in downtown <laughs> Greenfield, hence the name. But they um, they usually do specials, and they also bring in special ciders as well. You know, the the, the local. I, I mean, one of the the main organizers of Cider Days is the is the County Chamber of Commerce, uh, the Franklin County Chamber, and and they. There are a lot of the members have um, recognized that Cider Days is an important annual event, and so they want to participate in it. And uh, you know, uh, we we also do tastings, and uh, some of the workshops that we do are taste. Most of them are taste workshops. So the, uh, the uh, provisions, which is a, a famous cheese and wine shop down in Northampton, just outside the county. And they're building another place in Amherst, Mass. Um, they provide incredible cheeses from around the country and around the world, and that's sort of the 
the uh, end of the of Cider Days. That's the last event that we do on Sunday afternoons. And we have a cheese and cider pairing. And I round up ciders, six great ciders, and they bring six great cheeses. And we, we try to intelligently pair them. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I think that's one point that I want to get across about Cider Days, that it started really as an educational kind of event for people who wanted to make their own cider. And that's still a component of it, but it's also for people who just want to educate their palates. And so there are opportunities. We often do events on Friday night that have food components to it. We had a chef from Washington, D.C. come up two or three years ago and and present a whole menu. We've had uh, uh, people come from Asturias in Spain and bring typical foods from Asturias and pairing their ciders with those. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great experience. You can really learn a lot about food pairings and, and cider pairs so beautifully with most kinds of food, almost everything except maybe, you know, marinara sauce. And, uh, and I was going to say red meat, but actually if you go over to Asturias, they have ciders that are so, um, uh, you know, strong and acidic and, and really can take almost anything that I've, I've had ribeye steaks with cider over there before. Hey, and um, when this podcast airs, it's going to be right before Thanksgiving and leading up to the holidays. Can you take me through, uh, pick a couple of the ciders that you have for sale now and perhaps uh, what I might pair with them uh, for the holidays this year? Sure. Um, so we have uh, a new cider that we're that's called Pom d'Or, uh, golden apples. So it's made um, from three apples of gold in their name, gold, gold rush, John of gold, and golden delicious, um, which is a, a an almost floral blend of apples. And then we've um, lightly aged that on French oak for a little little toastiness at the end, but it's a totally dry cider. So no sugar added, no residual sugar from the fruit. Um, it's austere, it, it's sparkling, um, and I think that it will go really beautifully with um, cheese and charcuterie and appetizers, you know, things that have um, are salty and fatty, um, and that will really cut through that and cleanse your palate and get you ready for the next thing. Um, we have a a traditional semi-dry, um, which is a cider made from a, a orchard blend of our apples. Um, and it's got just a little bit of the natural sugar from the apples um, remaining in it. So just a little bit of sweetness, which actually brings more of the fruit flavor forward. Um, and I think that that um, will pair beautifully with um, with your turkey, um, with, with pork, um, um, and what you know, it, it really plays well with food. It's it's not too austere. Um, it's sort of, I call it our Goldilocks cider. It's not too dry. It's not sweet. Um, and just has a beautiful apple flavor that pairs well with almost everything. Um, we particularly like to, to drink it with barbecue because it's got got really beautiful apple flavors that complement that well. You know, that's that sounds really good, cider <laughs> with barbecue. And what about the ice The ice cider? Does so that ice, pair with anything? So the ice cider um, is really beautiful on its own. Um, like my dad was saying, it's, um, it's concentrated, um, but it's got a really beautiful vein of acidity through it that cuts that sweetness. Um, and I think that that it, it's beautiful as a dessert on its own, just a sipper um, to sit in front of the fire with, um, but also um, would pair beautifully with um, with apple pie, with a cheesecake, with sort of um, creme caramel or pot de creme sort of a thing. Um, and 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 for Christmas, I think it'll go really great with buttery Christmas cookies. <laughs> You know that's that's what I'm coming over for. <laughs> I'll be there. And then and and Peter, take us through your line because I, I know you have a new side you're excited about. Oh yeah, well we've got uh, right now we've geez we have done like ten labels already. Um, we've got three on the market left right now. One is called Hey Nineteen. Um, why is it called Hey Nineteen, Pete? Because I was thinking of a name for it, and uh, was kicking some pump that was misbehaving and the radio was on and steely dan came on and i went yeah well this is our 2019 cider and but we're not allowed <laughs> to put a vintage on it and well hey let's call it hey 19 that's got 19 in the label 
in the name, so we'll use that. Um, that's only at 6.5% ABV. Uh, again, it's just the apples we use ourselves. It's it's not insanely dry, um, and it is bubbly. It's a great festivity cider. We also have uh, a few cases left of Quercus. Quercus is Latin for oak. Well, that's just been a brief vacation in an oak bourbon barrel. Um, again, we want the cider to come. We want the apples to come through, and not like, oh my god, I'm drinking a lumberyard. Um, so it's a kiss of oak. A little malolactic fermentation went on. It's kind of sort of like a Chardonnay. It's a still one. And then a friend of mine came over. Um, I was doing something in the mill. He comes in. And he's got this four-pound bag of green bud. And I go like, you know, dude, no, I got stuff to do today, and, and four pounds would kill us. And he goes, what are you talking about? These are hops. And I go, hops? What the hell do I want with hops? And uh, so he said, make a dry hop cider. So he did. And we called it Cassidy, as in Hop Along Cassidy. Um, that hops <laughs> was grown by Four Star Farms out of Northfield, um, who will be opening a cidery next year, by the way. Um, and they should be on the on the tour next year. Um, so we've got those three labels out now. We are, believe it or not, running out. Um, I imagine we're probably going to sell out by spring, and that's a that'll be great because it'll give give us some room for the uh, 2021 ciders. Uh, which we're all expecting great things from because it's such a great crop this year. So, Peter, you're not a purist then, so you don't mind putting hops in your cider since they're locally grown? Yeah, well, a friend comes by and he says, here, use these four-pound bags. I, I, you know, it was it was whole leaf hops. It was full cone. And I'm not sure I'm going to play with full cone again because, oh, what a pain in my butt because leaves are floating everywhere in this 500-gallon, you know, tank of cider and i'm trying to get the leaves out and what a pain in my butt but um i like what it does in fact that it, it makes it so clear and unlike hops and beer where you get that bitterness from the hops um all you get are the floral notes and again it, it's just a little kiss of hops um it does tend to clear the cider and it does act as a preservative which is what hops were used for in the first place no i i have made a couple of flavored ciders i've made uh a cider called Figment, uh, which had figs in it, which we did for the holiday season. Um, gosh, what else did I do? Um, no, there, there are some things I won't touch. I mean, I'll probably never make a tuna cider. <laughs> <laughs> well, P- Peter, you, your name's been out there. Um, when I was talking to Ben about the show, over the years, a, a, a few different cider folks I know have mentioned you. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I'm going to put you on the spot then. Um, tell us about the American Cider Association and the Craft Beverage Modernization Act, because I don't even know what that is. Oh, okay, uh, Michelle McGrath. Yeah, she's the executive director of the ACA, and she is an angel. She really is. And they have this uh, annual convention called CiderCon. If you've never been, you should go. Uh, the nice thing about the ACA is that it's a massive tent. Um, it's the big kids. It's uh, it's the angry orchard. It's the um, it's the uh, uh, what's that one? Uh, Stella Artois Cidre. It's the big kids. It's the small kids like uh, like myself and and Ragged Hill, and we we get together and we play nice because uh, we know that if the cider market, you know, was that a rising tide raises all ships? That's the uh, that's the theory behind it, and the Amer- the Craft Beverage Modernization Act is a way to make small producers, and especially producers who are using farm products, uh, reduce their taxation rate, um, and which makes it possible for small operations like myself, like Ragged Hill, um, uh, like Bear Swamp out of Ashfield, uh, makes it possible for us to keep going. Um, that is a wonderful thing. Um, what I'm also hoping for is that Massachusetts can eventually adopt the New York's license of the farm cidery license. What that would allow is, you know, you're allowed to buy my cider at my place. You're allowed to buy Ragged Hill cider at Ragged Hill's place and Bear Swamp at theirs and Cars at theirs and West County at theirs. But with the farm cidery license, I would be able to sell Ragged Hill cider at my place, or or West County, 
or uh, cars or bear swamp and vice versa. So you may have a cidery way out in Newburyport, Massachusetts, right? And you're like, wow, I really like Pete's Cider, but here I am in Newburyport. Well, Cider Hill Cider's out there. And hey, you know, you give me a case of yours, I'll give you a case of mine. You can buy it there as well. And it would be able to get a farm, a Massachusetts agricultural product out there to everybody. I'm hoping that'll go through too. But in the meantime, on the federal level, there's some great things going on. I mean, we do have small producer status, uh, but the Craft Beverage Modernization Act uh, is a great thing. Actually, I'd like to kick that over to Anne because she just met with uh, Jim McGovern um, to talk about the Craft Beverage Modernization Act. Yeah, so um, Jim McGovern, our senator in Massachusetts, um, or, sorry, congressman, <laughs> sorry. Jim McGovern, our congressman in Massachusetts, um, came to visit our cidery when he was in the area, um, and we did get to bring up some of these concerns with him, and um, his office has actually been in touch with my dad about that, so I don't know if he wants to talk about that a little more. Uh, yeah, well, so the, our Massachusetts congressional delegation uh, has is on some important committees uh, in the House. Uh, there's Richie Neal, who is... Uh, who is Peter's uh, representative. He's chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. And uh, uh, so the issue with this, uh, uh, with this act that you mentioned is that, um, well, the big picture is that uh, laws and regulations in the U.S. governing uh, alcohol production are really meant to discourage the uh, production of, of any alcohol, whether it be beer, cider, wine, spirits. So many of our regulations are left over from prohibition, post-prohibition area, uh, era, when alcohol production was still regarded as something undesirable and everybody was trying to keep a lid on it. So it's been all these years since the 1930s, uh, and, and the regulations have never really been overhauled. So right now we're operating on a revision of regulations that's set to expire this year. And the, the, the new act that you talked about needs to be enacted uh, in, uh, into law so that the uh, certain provisions that, uh, that we have now uh, will uh, be uh, enacted permanently such as, as Peter mentioned, there's a small producer's credit. There is a special uh, lower tax for cider in, in particular. Um, but these are set to expire at the end of this year, and, uh, we'll, and, and we need these regulations to be permanently enacted. You know, Steve, just a, we're going to wrap it up soon, but going back to when you were younger, um, Give me that that memory again of of tasting an old hard cider for the first time, and, and what the taste is to you, because I feel like that's really where, the, you know, food and beverage people. That's really what we want from cider. Yes, the taste is what it's all about. In the end, we can talk about all these technical details, but it's all about what ciders taste like. So my earliest memory of cider, and incidentally, I, I recently wrote an article for a, uh, for a small magazine called Malus uh, about this. It's M-A-L-U-S, which is the Latin name for apple. Um, but so my, my earliest memory is uh, hanging in the summer on my friend's dairy farm, and which is hot, thirsty work. And how his dad would bring us in at the end of uh, a day of haying and let us drink some of his uh, cider from the barrel that he had stored down in, in his cool cellar. And I really remember it. Uh, I can remember it very vi vividly. It was, uh, it was sparkling, um, effervescent, uh, a little bit sweet. In other words, it hadn't totally... Uh, hadn't totally fermented out. It still had a little bit of sweetness left to it. And you could taste apples. You could, uh, uh, you got this wonderful uh, sparkling sensation, the thirst quenching sensation of, uh, 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 of, the, of the 
sparkles <laughs> in, in the cider. And uh, that has stuck with me all these years. And it's really, this is the flavor that we've tried to uh, produce, especially in our semi-dry cider. So that's exactly what, um, exactly what, what I was uh, aiming for. And the semi-dry cider, we, we run, won a gold medal for that uh, in, uh, uh, in 2019 uh, uh, for, uh, at the Glint Cap. Uh, uh, cider competition, which is Great Lakes uh, International Cider and Perry competition, which is uh, one of the foremost. Uh, well, it's really the the biggest event where people worldwide bring their ciders. Cider producers, both amateurs and professionals, bring their ciders for for judging. And uh, certainly, Peter and uh, and Ben uh, know this know this very well. Um, but so yeah, that's that cider from that's born from from my fifteen year old uh, memory as a fifteen year old drinking cider uh, that won a gold medal at. Uh, at the... That's great. And and back then, w w did people put their cider in a, a wood barrel? Uh... Yeah. So we had a local cider mill here when I was growing up. Uh, there was an old guy named Phil. It was Phil's cider mill, and. People who had a few apple trees would take their apples to fill, and he'd he'd press the cider and put it in a wooden barrel for you. You could take it home and uh, let it ferment in your basement or or wherever. And uh, the the reason I asked you that about eight nine years ago, I met these kids from Vermont, the Fable Farm, uh, and they had done the same thing. They had pressed pressed their apples when they were just making it, and they put it in a, a wooden barrel, and then a year later we tasted it. And I, I still remember just the, it was a very tart cider, but with the wood and aging, it, it was quite a remarkable, remarkable drink. Yeah. And I think, I think the, I probably have that same memory that you do. Um, yeah. So Ooh. this is great. You guys, I'm going to say, uh, it's great to hear about also the, these official, um, you know, when you build an industry, you need things like Glint Cap, which is a, you know, a, a recognizable award system and, and, you know, tastings and you need the cider associations. And I, I'm glad you mentioned Malice. Um, I'm a big fan of Ellen Cavelli at Tilted Shed in California and Darlene Hayes, who's now the editor. So I'm, I actually subscribe to Malice and uh, I should open mine up and, and make sure I read yours, um, Steve. Yes, but the, in the July edition. But, you know, I've got it. Uh, I just wanted to mention, you know, we, we're getting off on wood, but the wood, the oak barrel is really in, in cider. Uh, it, it, it's the equivalent of hops in beer. It's really, it, it's the, it's the, it's the, the spice or the, you know, maybe even the preservative of, of, uh, uh, of cider traditionally. Yeah. Traditionally all cider was in wooden barrels and, uh, it really is. Uh, it, it's a part of the flavor of uh, of cider. That's why we our Palm Door has a has a, a wood wood barrel. Steve, I'm, I'm so uh, glad you said that because um, we hear so much about techniques and brewing and cooking cider and you know stainless steel and everything. But I remember that taste I had of the the old tart cider in, in a wood barrel and. Um, that that really makes a lot of sense. This has been great. I want to give the floor back to um to Peter one more time. Anything else to wrap us up with? Because we're we're at about an hour and we're gonna close out. Sure. Hey, uh, cider days is as much as we could go on and on and on about hard ciders. Cider days is about all things apple. Um, there are a lot of other great stops in the trail. A lot of great orchards out there uh, that we have to go check out and see, like Clarkdale, uh, like Pine Hill. Um, also, uh, Ryan, and a couple of shout out to a couple of liquor stores like Ryan and Casey, Stan's Liquor Mart. Um, also, I believe uh, you have to check it out. Pine Hill Orchards is going to be doing, if you want to start making your own cider, they'll be selling blends of cider fruit, uh, which you can come up in a five gallon carboy, have it filled up, and start your own fermentation. Wow, that's great. And then, Ben, thank you so much for helping to put this show together. Um, just so you know, I feel like with this conversation, we got a, a mini taste 
of just what happens at Saturdays with all these wacky conversations and uh, agricultural processes and, and everything else. So thank you so much. Um, so a big shout out to everybody. Thanks to Ben, Steve, Ann, and Pete for joining me here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our producer, Dylan Hoyer, and engineer, Amanda Wang. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. woo Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.